Welcome, everybody, to our ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is the Islamic scholar, Yusuf Al-Hur. But before we get started, a few brief housekeeping items. On September 22nd, we started our book study group based on my most recent book, Dreams of Light. And I have to tell you that if the first few sessions are any indication, this promises to be a really rich event. You can still join us, and we'll find a link for that attached to this interview. Now, as for my guest today, Yusuf is a really remarkable individual with vast stores of knowledge, as you will see. His overview of Islam was so thorough that when I conducted this interview, it only took a few minutes for me to realize we should devote the entire first interview to just this topic. I'm going to bring him back in a few weeks to discuss things like dream yoga from an Islamic perspective. But isn't it true there is so much misunderstanding these days around Islam, so much bad press? Yusuf brings to light the tremendous scope and profundity of this tradition and where we can go to learn more about it. I'm really delighted to have made contact with a stream of knowledge I know very little about from a scholar and practitioner of great depth. I think you'll agree. Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. I am really particularly excited about my guest today. It's a rare opportunity to talk with a mystical scholar from a, a different tradition where I um, hope to learn a great deal. So as usual, I start with a brief official bio, and we're just going to jump right in. So Dr. Francisco Jose Luiz, a.k.a. Yusef Alhur, was born in Luxembourg in a Portuguese working-class immigrant family. He developed a deep interest for comparative religions and mysticism since his teenage years when he started practicing meditation. He completed two separate MA degrees in Indo-Iranian studies and in French and comparative literature at the Sorbonne University in Paris before doing his PhD in religious studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London on Sikhism. He taught at various universities in London, Toronto, Karachi, and his main research interests are Islamic mysticism and philosophy, Islamic art, the relations between Islamic, Christian, and Indic forms of mysticism. While working on his publications, he is also presently training in Arabic calligraphy and Middle Eastern music. And this is my favorite part, my friend, he hates instant coffee. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. So what what an honor and delight. Um, we just for our listeners, um, Yusuf is is speaking live from us in Baghdad, and so we're going to do the very best with the interconnection that we have. Um, but in short, my friend, thank you so much for for reaching out for taking well, time out of your busy life to to chat with us today. Well, thank you. I'm I'm, I'm very honored. Although I, I think the uh, I wouldn't see myself as a mystic scholar. I'm just, uh, I'm just a learner, and uh, I, I, I just try to share whatever, um, whatever I learn because there's no, you know, there's no monopoly on, on learning. Yeah, no kidding, yeah. no kidding. Yeah. So, so you know, it's, uh, I think it's, it's a healthy, uh, it's a healthy mindset just to see oneself permanently as a, as a learner. 
Yeah, the, 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 the beginner's mind that Suzuki Roshi talks about. But I, I want yeah, to say yeah, something yeah. At, the, at the outset. It's, it's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> I've been to Pakistan and I traveled up to um, the Hunza to Swat Valley and to, to what some students of Tibetan Buddhism listening may be interested in, which of course is, is Udiyana. And, and that's the land, of course, that um, gave birth to the great tantric guru. Yeah. Um, Buddha Padmasambhava, the, the great master who yeah. brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. So there's a, there's a very deep kind of geographical relationship to um, both Islam and Buddhism. And so I, I, I'm so excited to talk to you because I know so little about what you are now studying. And, and so therefore you have a relatively blank slate to work with. And I, I apologize at the outset, please forgive my ignorance of the nobility and subtlety of, of the Islamic tradition. And so I, I hope to correct that ignorance by engaging in conversation with you and um, learning from you. And so maybe we can start with a, a brief discussion about the relationship of, of Islam and what most students in the West know is, is kind of esoteric or mystical Islam, of course, which is Sufism. So, so maybe yeah. we can start there and then we can run free reign over a host of topics, eventually coming back to some of these amazing things that you have written to me about um, Islamic dream yoga and even Islamic bardo tenets. But why don't we start yeah. with something like that? Yeah, sure. Uh, Sufism, so Sufism is one form of, uh, and most, the most widespread form of uh, mysticism in the Islamic world. And the reason why I say one of the forms is because uh, Sufism is not so much a doctrine, it's actually a, um, it's an umbrella term to talk about uh, different lineages that exist within the Islamic tradition. Um, they're roughly, roughly around 25 to 30 orders uh, at the moment, orders and sub-orders. Uh, most of them actually belong to Sunni Islam and there's around five of them. Uh, that, that belong to Shi'ism, um, and so these are doctrinal differences. But pretty much the, the methodology is very it's very similar. Now they all have in common the idea that um, we're talking about lineages that have teachers uh, who have um, transmission lineages going back to the Prophet, uh, mostly through his uh, through his family, uh, the people that we call the Ahlul Bayt, the uh, the people of the house. So. Um, the Prophet Muhammad had um, had a daughter, Fatima uh, Zahra, uh, who is really seen as uh, in the esoteric traditions as the manifestation of God's wisdom. The uh, in Greek, or, well, actually, we um, in 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 esoteric terms, we would probably uh, like rather Latin. We talk about the Sophia Eterna, right? The, the eternal wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so she was married to the Prophet's cousin, Ali, and Ali ibn Abi Talib. And so the offspring of, of that couple then becomes the, uh, the, the, the in the Shi'i tradition, they're known as the, um, as the holy imams. And uh, although they're revered also by traditional Sunnis as well. And it's within that lineage that basically the esoteric teachings of the Prophet were kept and then disseminated among both Sunnis and, and, and Shi'is. And that's why 
the, the family of the Prophet has always been a unifying factor amongst, uh, amongst all Muslims. And uh, while the political, um, let's say, management of the community fell into the hands of other people, um, it's, it's been pretty much agreed uh, that uh, the, the household of the Prophet kept the esoteric teachings of the Islamic tradition. And so it's, it's, it, they're the channel through which they're, um, they've been transmitted. Um, for people who are familiar with Tibetan Buddhism, um, it's the, the um, for example, in mystical Shiism, the, uh, the, the holy imams or the infallibles, as they talked about, um, there are 14 of them, meaning the prophet, uh, his uh, cousin and son-in-law Ali, and then Fatima, uh, the prophet's daughter, and then their, 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 their offspring. Um, they, they're basically seen as uh, the manifestation of uh, one divine life in 14 different personalities. It's something like a tool called lineage, yeah. so to speak. And uh, the great scholar of uh, esoteric Islam, Henri Corbin, uh, talked about the notion of metamphotosis, meaning that one yeah. light um, travels into, into uh, it gets, well, travels through another personality, but it's always the same light. So there's, there's this idea there, and, and uh, so the, the, uh, the Sufi orders go back to, uh, to the teachings that you know, were transmitted by that family. Uh, initially, we, we, Sufism took the form of isolated ascetics, but then around the time of the Abbasids, uh, so around, let's say, uh, the ninth century, really, this is where Sufism becomes formalized into different lineages with each one ha having a specific, um, you know, methodology. Um, and uh, so the American listeners or North American listeners might be familiar with uh, the great Rumi, for example. Rumi is mm -hmm. one of the great personalities of the, uh, of the, of the Sufi tradition. And uh, I'd like to use Rumi to, 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 to highlight the fact that we're not talking here about some eccentric bohemian type Human right. personality. Uh, Rumi was actually a teacher of Islamic law at a, at the University of uh, at the, uh, the equivalent of the, of the University in, in Konya. So these were people who were deeply steeped in Islamic law, in Islamic philosophy, and uh, dogmatic theology. But they also had an a deep esoteric and mystical life, and the uh, and this is really what integral or um, complete Islam is about, meaning that you have to harmonize your, your esoteric with your exoteric. And if one, live, if, if one exists without the other, then there's a deep problem. Uh, and so um, I'm saying this because, uh, first of all, a lot of the translations out there of Rumi are actually not Rumi. Uh, this is a guy called uh, Coleman Barks, basically. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I know Coleman. Who... Uh, <laughs> Who, uh, who, uh, who basically brings out these texts that are actually not of Rumi at all, actually his own invention. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, it's good poetry, don't get me wrong, but it's not, it's not of Rumi. No People kidding. want to read Rumi, they should read the, the Masnavi, for example, or the Divan of Shams al or the, um, there's a really interesting book of uh, lectures that he gave to students and that were written down by his students uh, called the Fihi Mafihi. And these are, these are discussions where the esoteric 
uh, teachings are mixed with concentrations on Islamic law and so, on and so forth. So it's um, it's to give an idea of what what the, the Sufism is because very often people think that Sufism is a separate sect of Islam. That's not the case. Um, it's 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 the mystical current of Islam, and it's a uh, and 17th century um, dogmatic scholar by the name of Imam Laqani actually even stipulated that unless you're a Sufi, you're not a real Muslim, and so. Um, because you need, you need to observe the exoteric, the external laws of Islam, the laws of purity, the laws of prayers, and so forth. But you also need to have that interior life. You need to have this uh, battle with your own self and conquering yourself and, you know, uh, and, and, and seeking union with the, with the divine. Uh, and unless you do that, you're not really a, a good Muslim, basically. And unfortunately, since the 19th century, a lot of that has changed the um, full and internal and external causes. Um, there were this, um, there's certain movements that rose during the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 19th century, known as Wahhabism. Um, that's a, um, it's a very sort of uh, normocentric, sort of law-only part of Islam, and that basically took over Saudi Arabia with the help of the British. And that gave birth to uh, the wave of fanaticism and, uh, and destruction and murder and terrorism that we know nowadays. Um, and it's quite interesting that when that movement came, came about, it was, uh, it was considered heretical by uh, the central authorities of, uh, of both the Sunni and Shia world. But, you know, when you have, uh, when you have petrodollars on your side it's, it's, and, and you're able to disseminate that sort of doctrine, it causes uh, it causes great damage, and uh, I've seen in Pakistan uh, the, the part of damage that the dissemination of Wahhabism does, because the traditional Islam that people had in Pakistan was be this you know Sunni or Shia was a, a very mystical part of Islam, and then this wave of Wahhabism came over and uh, really poisoned the life of, 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 of the people of Pakistan. And just to give you an example, uh, the Buddhas of Bamiyan uh, in Afghanistan stood there for, you know, for, 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 for centuries. And it's only in, with the rise of the Taliban, who were, you know, well, although they were not Wahhabis, um, had deeply anti-mystical tendencies that these statues were destroyed. Uh, mm -hmm. and, um, and the same goes to some of the uh, Buddhist heritage in Pakistan that was, you know, was sort of, Left, you know, um, left alone until suddenly uh, people thought that they had to go out of their ways to basically destroy all of that, and that's because of Wahhabi propaganda. So the what we're seeing nowadays in the, in the Muslim world is really, from a traditional point of view, really an anomaly. Um, doesn't mean it was always a bed of roses either. Where there's, there's been some, there's been some uh, some rather uh, interesting characters. In Islamic history, generally speaking, um, what I always told my students in, in Pakistan was that um, if you look into the uh, belongings of your grandparents and great grandparents, you're, you're going to be bound to find um, basically uh, um, very long prayer beads with thousand beads, right? Um, which are, you know, nowadays quite exceptional. 
And these were used for um, intensive sessions of Vikr. Vikr is the, the remembrance of the divine names. So it's like a mantra, basically. You, yeah. you, so there, God has, Islamic tradition has 99 canonical names that people can, can call upon. And uh, they're really seen as uh, medicine. So you have normally a Sufi master, a sheikh, who, depending on your spiritual development or the needs that you have, will give you a specific name of God and a specific number of, uh, of repetitions to do a day uh, to achieve the uh, desired result. And so people would do that. And people nowadays don't, don't do that anymore. That's, that's gone. That culture is, uh, is, is gone, except in small circles that have survived. So, so yes. Yeah, I mean, what, what a fantastic, rich overview. And several things come to my mind. One is, um, first of all, you know, the kind of the egregious um, kind of mistake of attributing some of this poetry to Rumi, which, which also then begets to me the following question is, what, what else, from your perspective, what else, when you look at your understanding of Western interpretations of, of Islam altogether, what else do you see as egregious misunderstandings or propagations of mistruths that um, we seem to adopt in, in the West? So how, in addition to correcting this mistake uh, about Rumi, at a more foundational level, what, do you, what would you like to see corrected in the Western lens and in, in interpretation of Islam altogether? Well, that's, that's, it's a, it's a, this isn't a kind of worms because see the the um, the study of Islam in and of itself in in the West has never been a it's never been an innocent endeavor um, because um, there's this vice um, there's this um, there's this governor of Egypt the British governor of Egypt uh, by the name of Lord Cromer who basically, uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, set up the program on how to change the Muslim world to suit um, uh, West, uh, Western imperial and colonial uh, designs. Yep. And so he, um, he set out the idea that one had to, the West, the West had to reform Islam. And so scholarship on Islam in the West is, 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 has always had to struggle with this imperial strands yeah. whereby on the one hand you have the Samuel Huntington's who basically state that you know uh, Islam is always going to be eternally at war with the Christian world which is nonsense um, and then on the other hand the uh, the desire to create a sort of uh, liberal reformist sort of Islam that is basically uh, I call it the uh, Soy latte cappuccino Islam, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so, and and it's, uh, it's it's extremely problematic to um, to to one has to navigate between uh, well, one has to deal with with those both distortions, right? And for example, um, so one of my main interests is is the study of Shia Islam. So up until 1979, Shia Islam was not very much studied because Shia Islam was not very much of political interest, right? 
there was one great scholar uh, by the name of Henri Corbin, um, who uh, actually was a very good friend of, uh, of Carl Gustav Jung, and actually was sort of, I mean, sort of his successor in the um, Erano circles. Uh, um, so Jung and Corbin and Mircea Eliade and uh, Suzuki and Gershom Scholem, all these great scholars would convene every year in this uh, locality in Switzerland, um, in Ascona, and would have these uh, workshops together. And so, so Corbin, who was, was a specialist in Iranian Islam, was, uh, was, uh, became sort of, after Jung died, became sort of the head of that. And, um, you know, up until 1979, um, you know, the, the Shia Islam was mainly known through the works of Omar Corbin. And he, <clears throat> because he was French and because uh, France didn't have you know, didn't have any colonial designs in, in Iran or Iraq. So he was sort of, you know, um, he was dispensed with having to do this whole sort of uh, political analysis of it all. So his main interest was basically mysticism and philosophy. And uh, if anyone is interested in, in, uh, in that side of things, I would really encourage him to read his books because um, this is a man who spends six months of his life uh, in Iran and then six months in the, uh, the rest of the year with spending in Paris teaching wow. and uh, he he dug out all these amazing works of, of Iranian mysticism where and we'll talk about it, the, the notion of the Barzakh right the, the intermediary world right. that is right. both the, the, the realm of vision the realm of Pardo. dreams and also the realm of, uh, of the dead right then 79 comes the, the Islamic revolution comes and then you see this explosion of, Shia, of studies on Shiism but that Focus really only on you know the political aspect that you know Khomeini uh, brought about, right? Um, and and what happened is that so that in the study of Shiism, this this mystical aspect and philosophical aspect became less and less important, at least in um, in Anglo-Saxon academia, whereas. Um, uh, whereas in French academia, for example, this this um, this uh, interest in mystical and philosophical Islam uh, has continued thanks to the heir uh, to Henri Corbin at the chair of Islamic studies at the University of Paris, uh, who's now uh, Professor Amir Moezi, who is an I would really encourage people to read his um, one amazing book he wrote called uh, The Divine Guide in Early Shiism. It's a, can, can I interrupt you? Let me interrupt you very quickly, my friend. Can, can you spell the sure. names of these authors? Because the, the oh, connection sure, sure, is a little sure, bit foggy, sure. and, and I, for one, want to track these books down. So can you spell the names yeah, sure. of these two authors so we can track down their books? So uh, Henri Corbin, it's H-E-N-R-Y, and then Corbin, uh, C-O-R-B-I-N. Uh-huh. Got it. And, uh, and then there's Professor Amir Moezi, so Amir, A-M-I-R, and then uh -huh. Moezi, M-O-E-Z-Z-I. Perfect. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, because I want to make sure yeah. we get this down so we can track down this, these sources. Terrific. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're, they're, they're amazing books. I have, um, you know, I have, I mean, especially Henri Corbin's books are, are books that actually change people's lives, literally. Oh. Um, I, had a, I had a very dear friend of mine, um, Dr. Seth Carney, who, um, 
who basically, uh, after reading Alone with the Alone uh, by Henri Corbin, uh, decided to basically engage in Islamic studies. He got his PhD from the same university as me. Um, he unfortunately uh, died in, uh, 13 years ago. Uh, but an, an amazing scholar who wrote about the, the feminine divine and uh, esoteric Shiism. And uh, so what happens is that, is that the scholarship on, 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 on mystical Islam really depends on where it comes from and what political interests are behind it. And unfortunately, uh, spe especially after 9-11, you know, uh, but, but also since the Islamic revolution in Iran, the focus has been pretty much on, on politics. So there's no dearth really, of studies on political movements in, in, in Islam. But there is, um, but the whole mysticism and philosophy issue, uh, well, the dimension of Islam is sort of, you know, is sort of, uh, has become marginalized in, in, in the academic world. There, there, are, there are very good specialists of, um, of mystical Islam. I, I would mention, for example, Paul Ernst, uh, who's, um, at the University of North Carolina, who's, uh, who's a great scholar of Persian Islam, and who wrote a, a series of amazing articles on the relationship between mystical Islam and um, basically uh, um, tantric and yogic mysticism. Okay. Uh, so yeah, oh, it was amazing. So you have in, in, in the pre-modern era, you have this genuine curiosity that um, Muslim mystical orders and Sufis basically had for Indian mysticism. And you have translations of tantric and yogic texts that uh, basically circulate from Iran right up to uh, the Ottoman Empire. And, and uh, so it's, 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 it's fascinating. Um, there's, um, there's, for example, around the 19th century, you see the, uh, the chakra system being adopted by... Um, Iranian Sufis as the most appropriate way to envision the um, the the uh, well the uh, subtle the subtle body. So there there's this, this this sort of intellectual generosity that was there in 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 in, uh, in the Muslim world really contrasts uh, so much with what with what we're being presented today and. It, it's no surprise that this sort of thing is not going to be of any interest to people who have to write, who, who are being financed by think tanks and um, political think tanks and, uh, and so on and so forth, especially when one knows that uh, several chairs of Islamic studies in America are funded by, yeah. uh, you know, by the Gulf countries yeah. who themselves have absolutely, yeah, have, so that's, this is this is this is a big problem. Um, when I was teaching in North America, I, I I saw I was really in a quagmire, and and this actually prompted me to basically, in order to save my own academic integrity, to to basically um, uh, take my distances because uh, it, it, it's see it's it's very difficult to retain your academic integrity. If you know the people who's funding your chairs yeah. decided that you know this is this is the political line that you have to follow, yeah, uh, which is a problem that you don't necessarily have in in, in countries like France or Germany or, or Russia, right? For example, that's why the scholarship on Islam that comes from um, that comes from Germany, Russia, or, or, or France 
tends to be less preoccupied by these uh, by these issues because it's you know it's state funded and uh, so surprisingly enough in the temple of secularism that is the Sorbonne you have this, uh, these groups of uh, scholars who are deeply into mysticism sometimes uh, who are practitioners of mystical practices themselves um you know and uh, and that's not only for islamic studies uh and even for indian religions you have people who uh who are practitioners uh, of, of uh, you know indic traditions such as buddhism or different forms of hinduism and who are at the same time scholars and that's not seen as a um as really a problem this this would be a problem in certain other academic environments and so there's a uh, I mean my advice the advice I would give to people who would, uh -huh. would like to read on these issues is to is to um, you know look for German, yeah. German or French scholarship uh, it's not to say that there's, there's all of the Anglo-Saxon scholarship on, on, on Islam is that far from it um, but one has to see what kind of interests um, are behind that. As the, as the great um, you know, French linguist uh, Roland Barthes used to say, when someone speaks, you have to see where that person speaks from. No kidding. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's um, you know, and, and it, it, that's, that's, that's been, a, that's been it's extremely problematic. And, and that's, you know, at some point, one, I mean, I've become tired, really, of, of having to constantly have to deal with these uh, this very binary way of presenting Islam, it's either um, Muslims are supposed to be either Muslims are hate you know hateful fanatics or they're uh, you know they're open-minded uh, alcohol drinking liberals. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, and and, and it's, uh, it's 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 more complicated, right? Yeah, and uh, it's it's um, you know, and that's why I I I, I think um, you know, like for example, before um, I mean, I go to Iran quite a lot because it's you know it's part of my it's part of my um, field of expertise, really. So my first trip to Iran was in two thousand seven, and I was shocked. Uh, when I first arrived in Iran, because uh, of all of the stuff that we had been told about Iran, right? Um, so this is not a statement here about the politics that are, I don't want to get involved in the politics of it all. But I found a, a society of you know extremely educated people, um, yeah. and 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 uh, you know with with a with a, a, a I mean, go to any underground station in Tehran. You see young people reading. Uh, you see young people deeply invested in in, in in classical music and this sort of stuff. Hmm. So, and I see a society that is, you know, deeply engaged with 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 with, uh, with culture, but also with, with compassion. Um, there's this. I was I was very much struck by this thing that there was an initiative. Um, uh, in, in, in Tehran, where um, people have, there was this wall next to a, a, a metro station, and they called it the uh, Wall of Mercy. So people leave bags of food there for homeless people, so that 
people, these homeless people can come and pick them up. Um, because there's, especially in the East, there's this idea of preserving the dignity of the person who is begging food from you, right? So in order not to put that person in, in a sort of embarrassment uh, by, you know, doing the whole gesture of, you know, look, I'm so merciful. Uh, so people leave clothes and, 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 and food and uh, as a way of preserving the dignity of people who, you know, unfortunately are on the receiving end of, you know, life's um, tragedy. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And of course, a special thanks to Yusuf for sharing his incredible knowledge. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. There is a lot happening at the club these days. But until next time, pleasant dreams.